This program is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication, which is comprised of five schools, each offering a variety of majors and programs for students who want to pursue communication-related careers. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today we're talking with our friend Phil Ewing, National Security Editor for National Public Radio, and we're getting an update on what's going on in Washington. Phil's a veteran Washington reporter on intelligence and security matters. We talked with him today about what's going on on the southern border, plus other current Trump administrative issues. Phil, uh, this weekend we saw a gassing at the southern border. We saw some horrific pictures uh, of mothers and and women and children running running away from from the gassing. I I know you've covered the military for uh, um, many years before you uh, took on your current job. Uh, What was the military's role in this, if any? And talk us through how an order like that would come down. I'm not aware that American troops had any role directly in the incident that you're describing in Tijuana, where there's uh, a great number of people who've come up from Central and South America and are kind of uh, holding, if you will, at this soccer stadium in Tijuana across the border inside of Mexico. From what I understand about the official statements made by the government, the people involved were Customs and Border Protection officers who are law enforcement officers, they wear badges, and they have law enforcement powers in a different way from the way the troops who've been sent to the southern border are being used, which we can talk about in a minute. Um, But the most important point of departure for this discussion is U.S. law countenances specific roles for the types of people who are empowered to carry weapons, wear a badge, use arrest powers, Uh, swear out complaints and do other things. And that is where there's an important breakdown between what Customs and Border Protection officers can do. They are federal agents, uh, law enforcement officers. They have uh, different authorities than the military forces that have been sent down to the border. There are about not quite 6,000 of them, um, a lot of them taken from engineering units from places like uh, Fort Knox or Fort Campbell in Kentucky and places in North Carolina. And what they've been asked to do is support those forces in kind of a rearguard way. So if the customs officer in a certain district says, I want there to be a barrier in this area, the military troops who have been deployed are responsible for putting up concertina wire to to wall it off from people coming over the border. Or the customs officers might say, I want there to be a ditch uh, on either side of this dirt road so that we can control better who is coming and going on it. And the military engineers, you can imagine, either go out there with shovels and they dig the ditch or they might have some uh, heavy equipment that the Air Force could fly down that they would then use to do those kinds of, they're not improvements, what's the term I want, development or or, uh, shaping the battlefield is what soldiers would say. 
And that is the role that the Department of Homeland Security has asked for the military to do. However, the the politics uh, through all this, which I know we'll get to also in a minute, are so overheated that there's a lot of misperceptions about what these troops may do, what they've been asked to do, what they've been ordered to do, and what they're capable of doing at the border. Do you know how that order comes down? Or is it just you have a right to respond to people trying to get into the country? That's right. And the way these incidents have worked in the past is there's a local official who he or she can say things are getting hot down on the borderline and people are trying to come across and now they're throwing rocks and bottles or whatever. And so that person in the same way that a police commander might in a riot situation can say, okay, we're going to clear this block, push all the protesters one block up because I've decided this area needs to be safe. There are commanders on the ground who are making those very close order tactical decisions. And they theoretically have the training and expertise to be able to say, in one situation, we're going to use tear gas because we just want people to disperse. Or in another situation, they're going to say, in the in the case of a police situation, go in there and arrest all those people because I just saw them doing something illegal. On the border, the situation is not as simple because the Customs and Border Protection officers They don't want to go over the borderline into Mexico, into Tijuana, and try and arrest people. They just want to get people who are in a tense situation to get away and disperse, which is why they may have decided in this situation that uh, the CS, this tear gas, was appropriate. But if I'm correct, a person seeking asylum has a right to enter the country to request asylum. That was the practice for a long time. And one of the other things that is changing in this world of border enforcement and DHS and military deployments to the border are the practices and policies and laws as envisioned by the administration. So the president has the power to, for example, change the way those applications are made. And if the practice in the past was that any person walking over the theoretical line in the desert or over the Rio Grande could approach a customs officer and say, I've been oppressed in my home country or I'm a refugee from hardship and I want to request asylum in the United States, that would then begin a process uh, of adjudication for that person. If I understand the current policy uh, ordered by the president, that can only be done at these so-called ports of entry. So you can't just come over the border wherever you'd like. You have to go to El Paso, Texas, or you have to go to San Diego or one of the other border crossings that has been set aside by the U.S. government for that purpose. The administration's argument is when there are large groups of people coming up en masse to try and do this altogether, that constitutes, in the administration's view, an abuse of this policy uh, and an abuse of the United States, the president would argue. And if that was the situation before in Tijuana with this group of people at the soccer stadium who've come up from Honduras and some other places, they're not going to do that anymore. And the question now is, if those 5,000 or so people who are inside of Mexico at the border want to go through that process of requesting asylum, how can they actually do it? There have been some discussion by members of Congress and by commentators in California and nationally that there might be a way for the United States to set up a safe zone, quote unquote, inside of Mexico. The Mexican authorities obviously would have to agree. And then you could have a Mariel Boatlift style in-processing center, but within Mexico, so that Customs and Border Protection and the Mexican authorities and other 
officials would do all that work there and then control the flow of people who actually physically crossed into the United States much more strictly. But right now, that hasn't been decided, and that's kind of where the story stands. Let me uh, circle back to the military just so that we can clarify this. As you've indicated, the troops who are there uh, have been in, in a support role, a construction role. Uh, there's been some confusion, however, at least to public perception from the president as to what their role is. Can they actually engage with uh, a migrant trying to come in? Are they there to support the Border Patrol? If a Border Patrol person is threatened, what role can the military take? Have you perceived exactly what their parameters are? The confusion is a feature and not a bug of this from the administration's position because there are two things taking place at the same time. There's the reality of this deployment on the ground, which I'll talk about in just a moment, but there's also the way that the White House and the president would like it to be perceived by their supporters. And I'll start there. What the president wants is for his supporters to be confident that these so-called caravans, these large groups of migrants that come up from, in the case of the one in Tijuana, Honduras, and other places in Central and South America, are going to be met by overwhelming force at the border and stopped, physically stopped from coming in the United States. And so, especially before the midterm election this month, the president talked about how he was going to have troops with rifles shoot at migrants if they tried to throw rocks or bottles and threaten them because there was at least one incident in Mexico that was shown on TV in which authorities there kind of didn't do anything about this large mass of people for reasons that I can't speak to. I just don't know factually what what may have happened or might not have happened in that case. And so the president talked publicly in a kind of loose and unofficial way about these troops as protectors and guardians, and they were going to stand shoulder to shoulder at the Mexico border with rifles and point them south and say, if anyone comes up here and threatens me, I'm going to shoot to kill. And that was very important politically for the president and Republicans to look strong on the border on immigration. They chose to make that their stock and trade in the campaign in the same way the president did in 2016, because that's a winning issue for them with Republicans in a lot of the country. And the president also is not wrong when he says that there are many people from Central and South America who do cross into the United States illegally, although my colleague Scott, Scott Horsley would point out that those numbers actually have come down over time, but that's that's of no moment for this political situation. That's why there were reports about these these orders or these instructions issued by the president that said, if the Secretary of Defense deems it appropriate, these troops may use force in support of the Border Patrol if they want to. Now, in reality, as we talked about a moment ago, these are... Uh, construction battalions, combat engineers, uh, support units who are going in to do improvements in a support role for Customs and Border Protection, and a lot of them don't even have rifles. The Secretary of Defense, Jim Mattis, went down to the border and got questions about this at the Pentagon from some of my former colleagues, and they said, what's all this about shoot to kill and treating a rock as a deadly weapon, etc.? And Mattis said, I think these were his, his exact words, don't worry about it. A lot of them don't even have rifles. They've been sent down to use their expertise to do combat improvements, to put up the concertina wire that you've seen, right. to do other kinds of uh, 
work on the border, but they are not there in a combat role, and actually they are not even equipped to serve in a combat role. Now, I'm sure, knowing the U.S. Army, there are rifles and pistols and other weapons in and among the forces that have been sent down there. They wouldn't be soldiers if they didn't have them. And there is a theoretical situation in which the Customs and Border Protection officers who are in the lead defending the border at all times, including now, got into a nightmare gunfight with, you know, the Sinaloa cartel if they were driving their 4 by 4 pickup trucks over the border trying to do some kind of Afghanistan-style run-and-gun cocaine convoy over the border, then you could see U.S. Army soldiers being engaged. But that's very unlikely. And more importantly, for these purposes, that's not the way a lot of these um, smugglers operate. They don't, they don't seek out confrontations with authorities the way you might see in the movies. They have many other ways, including tunnels and aircraft and all kinds of uh, overland routes in um, semi-trucks and other ways of taking uh, contraband into the United States, and they do not seek out a gunfight because they'll be outgunned and they'll lose in the same way that a lot of Mexican authorities, including the Mexican Marines, have outgunned uh, drug cartels inside of Mexico. That's not to say that the violence in Mexico isn't serious, that the cartels aren't uh, dangerous and deadly threat. They are. But those aren't the types of scenarios that are taking place very often along the border, and they're not contemplated as a part of this deployment for these troops. The president keeps threatening to close the the border. Uh, and that, I hear through NPR, would cause major financial hardships uh, uh, along the, the border, people going back and forth, businesses, et cetera. Uh, talk about that in connection with, if you would, uh, his negotiation for a wall and the potential for government close down or shut down uh, as we're coming up here in December on budget time. It's a very complicated situation. Um, we can start at the border and then we'll work our way to, to Washington. Right. You know, the United States and Mexico for many years before Trump's election developed a very close trade and economic relationship. And in fact, depending on the way you calculate uh, the GDPs involved, the gross domestic product, Mexico has a bigger economy than Canada's because of the free trade agreements, especially NAFTA, that were negotiated in the 1990s among the North American powers so that your uh, railroads and your General Motorses and Ford Motor Companies and others could uh, shift more of their production outside of the United States to cheaper areas. And the way that system works is there's relatively free access between and among the countries involved. And so there are people in California, there are big automakers and others, agricultural buyers and sellers, who depend on free access over highways and through places like Tijuana and San Diego, uh, Ciudad Juarez and El Paso and other important uh, connection points to just do interstate, what we would call interstate commerce, just semi-trucks driving back and forth. Right. And so closing those linkages, closing down those borders completely could mean a big economic hit for those people because we don't have warehouses full of parts anymore in the modern economy. Everything is done so-called just in time. And if you're assembling a uh, sedan up in northern Ohio in Mahoning uh, County, for example, and you're counting on uh, transmission linkages or whatever that were assembled down in Mexico, let's just say, and you can't get them, all of a sudden you can't build those cars anymore. Now, the situation with GM is, is something else altogether. Right. But at the same time, the president has made a political bet 
that this issue will continue to win him support among people who feel very strongly about uh, immigration from the South, especially from Mexico and Central and South America. And he has calculated in other instances that economic pain in the short term will translate into long-term political gains. Um, The president's uh, restrictive trade policies with China, for example, have meant that American soybean farmers, American soybean farmers are um, really hurting right now. They can't sell their soybeans to China specifically in the way that they could before these restrictions were put into place. And uh, the president has used his authority under the law to actually give a bailout package to the agricultural zone, including the soybean people through the uh, U.S. Department of Agriculture to pay them in the way that some of us remember President Reagan, uh, you know, paying farmers not to grow wheat because of restrictions on exports to the Soviet Union back in those days. And uh, his hope is that people in those places, in your Nebraskas, in your Iowas, in your Indianas, in your Ohios, will continue to stay with him because he can gap the difficulty of his economic policies in a way that will allow him to get to a good situation over the medium term. And we don't know how that bet is going to turn out. The odds are it's probably pretty good based on the outcome for the Senate races in the 2018 midterm elections. Americans in rural areas tend to vote Republican. They tend to support the president. And they may stay with him even though there's these complicating factors. So we don't know. But that all puts us into the political situation now. So the president wants to be able to have a physical barrier from the United States to Mexico on the southern border that would traverse all many thousands of miles uh, uh, of its length. I can't remember how many it is, but that's going to cost a lot of money. And uh, the pro- the Congress so far has not agreed to, to pay for that. And what the president said before Election Day this month was that he was willing to shut down the government if uh, members of, of Congress would not agree to put funding for his wall in the bill that is required by the middle of next month to keep the government operating. It's not a full government shutdown because Congress has passed appropriations bills for, if my memory serves, about uh, two-thirds of the government. But there are big departments that don't have authorizations, and that is what's coming next here in Washington. And in fact, there's there's a debate with Congress back in town after the Thanksgiving holiday this week about how exactly those politics are going to play out. The Senate Majority Leader, uh, Senator McConnell from Kentucky, was asked about there being a government shutdown next month. And if I remember correctly, he basically ruled it out. He said, that's not going to happen. We're not going to do that. There's other ways to get around this. And so the question now is whether he knows something the rest of us don't, because the president is going to fold or they're going to put enough money in the budget to satisfy the president and allow him to climb down from his standoff position. Um, But we don't know. That's kind of where the state of play stands. But all this is part of that political strategy as well. The president's vow to build a wall was his arguably his signature campaign promise in 2016. He also said in 2016 that Mexico was going to pay for the wall. And I don't know that that is going to happen. And actually, I don't even know if anyone expects that to happen anymore. But it's very important for him, again, to sustain that political support in places where he enjoys it today, for him to at least keep these issues alive and to try to advocate for them as best he can. He may not even need to win on any of them. He may not need to shut down the border. He may not need to actually get the full funding for a border wall in order to be able to continue to be seen as advocating for issues that his supporters want. So you can you can fight the fight in Washington and lose, but sometimes just having the fight is a good enough outcome for your own political purposes. Well, and he's got a short time uh, period with the lame duck Congress now through the end of this month or the end of December, I should say. 
That's right. And there are also other political calculations as well. Um, there are people, mostly Democrats, but one or two key Republicans, including the lame duck Arizona Senator Jeff Flake, who's going to be out of a job when this Congress expires at the end of the year, who want legislation uh, before the end of the year to protect the special counsel, Robert Mueller, because he may do some things here in short order. We don't know, but there's a lot of kind of clues rising to the surface that may or may not uh, mean more criminal charges or some other work from him that could pose a political threat to the president. And so what Senator Flake and his Democratic colleague Chris Coons want is legislation that would formally enshrine the ability for the special counsel to continue his work without being interfered with by the new acting attorney general, Matt Whitaker, or to be fired altogether by the president. The president and his attorneys have taken the position that they have the power to fire anyone in the executive branch for any reason. And that's why supporters of the special counsel are so nervous about this. And so Democrats actually have done this before. Uh, they've calculated that the politics for them might be good to hold the line and let the government shut down because there won't be enough funding to support the operations that require an appropriation. And when they did it, they kind of looked foolish. And the minority leader, Senator Schumer from New York, wound up backing down and agreeing to whatever concessions were at issue at the time. I can't remember specifically, and then starting things back up. But there's a there's a world in which Democrats might calculate that it makes sense for them, too, to hold the line on a Mueller protection bill as opposed to a border wall bill. So we could get a government shutdown through column A over the border wall, or we could get one over column B over protecting Mueller. No one knows. But uh, right now, all the sides are still on a collision course to uh, come together, I think, in the second week of December, second or third week of December. So that's something to stay tuned for. They may they may get it resolved, or we may have a another shutdown, and then we may have another shutdown at the end of December too. So that's something to look forward to as well. Let's take a side trip into Mueller's investigation before we get back to intelligence. Uh, yesterday, uh, the Mueller team, and we're talking on Tuesday morning. Uh, on Monday uh, evening, the Mueller team filed a, a statement asking for immediate sentencing of Manafort, saying that he had breached his plea agreement. Uh, his Manafort's attorney said, uh, we didn't breach it, but we also want immediate sentencing. Uh, I, I want you to talk about that because I know you've been covering that, but also this morning, on Tuesday morning, the president tweeted three long tweets, uh, again, attacking Mueller. That's not so unusual. Uh, but he talks about uh, heroes will come out of this, and it won't be Mueller or his angry gang of Democrats. Uh, that's just a, a small part of the tweet. But the, the word heroes struck me with the idea of a possible pardon of a person like Manafort or Trump uh, characterizing him as a hero? Or are there others going to emerge that, that you might know about, but we don't? Boy, that's a great question. I, I, To be honest with you, I have no idea what the president is referring to there. Although if I try and place myself into his position, I can imagine that the Mueller work product might ultimately reveal that there were opportunities in 2016 for more venality between the members of the Trump campaign and the Russians who attacked the election that 
uh, didn't go forward because of people in the Trump orbit making decisions um, one way or the other. We know from the investigation so far that there were many pilot wells drilled by Russians into the president's campaign in 2016, starting in March of that year. And some of them struck oil and some of them did not. And if what Mueller can establish and what the president knows from his own personal situation is that there was a critical moment at which um, Igor Kobarov of the GRU called uh, Paul Manafort and said, Comrade Paul, I am going to collude with you in our effort to sway the election on your behalf. And Manafort said, no, no, we don't agree. Maybe for the president's purposes, that will be a heroic act uh, by Manafort. We just don't know at this point. What we do know is that Manafort was found guilty in the summer by a jury in the Eastern District of Virginia in a tax and fraud case, and that he was facing a separate second federal case in Washington, D.C. the following month, and he avoided a trial in that second case by agreeing to plead guilty. The government agreed in that guilty plea to show lenience or to ask a judge for lenience when he was sentenced on those uh, charges for which on which he was convicted, and um, in exchange, Manafort would cooperate and tell investigators what they wanted to know about 2016 before and since. The government said in a filing on Monday night, as you mentioned, that it considers the lies that they say Manafort has told investigators to be in violation of that plea agreement. And so that he can go to sentencing for the uh, charges on which he was convicted and the charges to which he's pleaded guilty in the other matter. And they will go to the judge and say, judge, we want you to throw the book at this guy and lock him up for the rest of his life because he did not cooperate in good faith with the agreement that we struck in order to spare him the second trial in D.C. Um, a lot of people thought that the evidence against Manafort was so damning that he wanted to avoid that second trial no matter what because he would be convicted on many, on many or all of the counts involved, which would only compound his problems after that first trial in Virginia. Um, Manafort's camp said in its response to the government's motion that no, Manafort had been telling the truth, but that if the government was going to treat them in that way, they wanted to take their chances with sentencing, as you mentioned. And that's where the matter stands. I don't think that Manafort is going to be sentenced today. Um, but at the same time, that could happen relatively soon. There was a date that had been set for that. I think it was this month. And now that this uh, situation appears to have broken down between Manafort and the government, um, it could happen in relatively short order. What's not clear to me is whether this means that Manafort's cooperation is over or whether there is some way for them to have a rapprochement going forward. And I imagine just knowing the way that the U.S. Attorney's Office often works, they might have actually broken down weeks or months ago, and then finally uh, Mueller or someone else in his office decided, we have no choice but to play hardball and go back to the court and say, this guy's not cooperating in the way that he said he would, and so there's nothing more for us to do here. And for our listeners, there will be filed by the government a memorandum uh, for sentencing with the federal court, and obviously the defense would have an opportunity to respond. But uh, that document will be important, I assume, for you as, as a reporter to read the tea leaves here because the way Mueller's documents have been in the past, they've been fairly detailed. 
very detailed. And actually, one of the great things about the story, but also one of the very frustrating things about it is the work product from the special counsel's office has been exclusively in the form of legal documents and plea agreements, criminal information, and um, indictments, and uh, the odd guilty plea now and again. I can't remember if I mentioned that or not. And so there's no um, PR department the way there is in other government agencies spelling things out with bullet points or drawing helpful pie charts to help you understand the way the story is going. So you have to pour over these documents, oftentimes which are told out of order and which uh, involve parties and institutions that are not named because of the practices of the Justice Department and the U.S. Attorney's Manual, and you have to put the pieces together yourself. And so the next time one comes out in the case of Manafort or some of the other people in the case, um, we're going to go over it very closely. We do know that there are other cooperating witnesses, at least one that I can think of, um, who have been mentioned in court documents as being so important to a number of investigations that their uh, work is going to continue until 2019. And the case I'm thinking of is that of Rick Gates, who was Paul Manafort's former business partner and is kind of his uh, protege. He also served as the vice chairman of the Trump campaign and continued with the Trump campaign in 2016 into the inauguration period after Manafort had technically been fired and absented himself from it. And what the the special counsel's office has said in other court filings is that this Gates is participating in so many ways in so many investigations, investigations plural, that we would like you please not to sentence him judge because we need to keep working with him into the new year. Now that S on the end of the word investigations was very interesting and, and tantalizing to a lot of people because it suggests that the special counsel's office could be doing its work about the 2016 investigation and the U.S. attorneys uh, that have been involved with this case in a broader sense in the Eastern District of Virginia, in Alexandria, or up in the Southern District of New York in Manhattan, they could have pieces of this as well. And what happens, as you know, Tom, is in the federal system, someone right. can be a, a global cooperating witness. And so if there's another U.S. attorney or another investigator who needs to ask something of someone that you've brought in who's reached a plea agreement with you, um, they often will do that. And in fact, uh, the president's former attorney and fixer, Michael Cohen, who also pleaded guilty in a case adjacent to the Russia matter, but not directly linked with the attack on the election in 2016, he pleaded guilty in the Southern District of New York to the U.S. Attorney's Office there, and he is awaiting sentence. But he has also spoken to the special counsel's office in Washington. In fact, he was on TV coming into Union Station on the train from New York City for what people believed was a meeting with uh, either Mueller's grand jury or Mueller's investigators here in Washington. Um, That means there could be many more other things that spin out of this, but no one knows what they are because that's the most frustrating thing about this story. Mueller operates totally in secrecy. His office is a black box. It very seldom says anything except in those legal documents I mentioned, and it almost never talks with reporters, which means we all have to wait together to see what comes out of that special counsel website on the Justice Department uh, homepage to be able to read the latest work that he's done. We'll be back after this message. The Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University and its leadership and faculty strongly support diversity in all of its forms. The college has defined the concept of diversity as acceptance and respect for all, 
and understands that each individual comes with a unique set of life experiences shaped along the dimensions of race, ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation, and gender identity, socioeconomic status, age, abilities, religious beliefs, political beliefs, and all other ideologies. At the Scripps College of Communication, diversity is about understanding one another and moving beyond simple tolerance to embracing and celebrating the rich dimensions contained within each individual. Diversity enables the exploration of varied life experiences in a safe, positive, and nurturing environment. To learn more and find out how you can become part of this diverse community, go to ohio.edu slash Scripps College. I know part of your reporting bailiwick uh, and supervisory role at NPR is intelligence. Um, I want to go back, it seems like forever ago, it was only a week or so ago, to uh, the intelligence briefing of President Trump on Jamal Khashoggi, the the reporter who was uh, murdered uh, in in Turkey uh, by Saudi representatives. Um, it seems, again, we have the president, if we take the broader look, rejecting arguments from his intelligence agencies. Not the first time, uh, but a series of these. Can you talk about what that means? How does the intelligence community react to that? Are there any repercussions internally within the government for that kind of rejection? That's a great question. And I have to imagine that inside the family, as it were, there's been a lot of accommodation of this style of presidency in the way that it consumes intelligence, especially because the president has also become much more comfortable and forthright in articulating his views in ways that are historically unusual for an American president and for the political system in the United States, but which uh, the president has made kind of his his brand. And if you read the president's statement about the crown prince Mohammed bin Salman and Jamal Khashoggi closely, what he was saying was, the CIA has presented me with information. Maybe it's true and maybe it's not, but I've decided to continue the policies that I wish to pursue, no matter what the facts in the case are. In fact, there was that I think what will become a historic phrase that Trump used about the crown prince and his culpability for Khashoggi's death, maybe he did and maybe he didn't. And with Trump, so much of his public messaging boils down to epistemology. No one can know that. They don't know that. You don't know that. They can't prove that. I've never heard that before. I don't know what that is, except in cases where he does. And then he decides maybe they did do that or maybe not. Or how do you know? But there's a there's a way that he talks about what can be known and what are what have been established that he can use to undercut a position and say, well, there's not 100% proof. No one showed me a photograph of, uh, you know, the crown prince ordering his chief of security to have this man killed. And uh, because I don't have that, I can't be 100% sure that it took place. And there's also the way that he uses that technique to respond politically. But 
the president uh, conceded something which I found also fascinating because this is something that very seldom comes out in real time in the press. He was asked by Chris Matthews uh, of Fox News about this ostensible recording that had been made by Turkish intelligence inside the Saudi consulate in Istanbul. Now, it's common practice for nations to have bugs or other surveillance devices in their in each other's diplomatic facilities. And that's, in fact, so common that there's usually a room within a room in each one of those facilities where people can really go and feel secure. Um, and so it wasn't surprising necessarily that the Turks had a recording of what they said was this man being killed and dismembered. But what was surprising is they talked about it almost immediately. They were telling the New York Times and other news organizations about this right in real time, right after Khashoggi disappeared. And Wallace asked the president about it, and he acknowledged that it existed and said, I'm not going to listen to that. That's too terrible. I don't need to hear that. He was being confronted in real time by a journalist with what in other circumstances would have been unimpeachable evidence from the intelligence world that this crime or this act had taken place, a recording of it happening, of a man being killed and dismembered. And he said, yeah, I know that it's there, but I don't want to look at that. And it doesn't affect my calculations about what the policy of of the United States would be. And a lot of the commentary around this was, as usual with Trump, not about the policy that he's pursued or the decisions that he's taken in terms of their substance, but just the style that he's decided to pursue. The United States has overcome so many things with Saudi over the past 30 and 40 years. The Saudi intelligence uh, agency gave aid and comfort to hijackers who then um, crashed their airplanes into targets in the United States on 9-11. The United States has gone along with the bloody, brutal war by the Saudis against um, Iranian-backed rebels in Yemen and done many other things. And the United States has turned a blind eye for Saudi support to extremism and the Saudis' terrible record of human rights inside their own country, uh, the way they've brutalized women and religious minorities and the LGBT community, etc. This relationship is so strong and so important for strategic reasons that it has always endured. And so what the president said actually was, uh, I'm going to continue to stay the course. I want to do this strategic relationship with the United States because it's good for business, it's good for us strategically, and we're just going to stay the course here with the crown prince. It's probably the same decision that many other presidents would have taken, but they would not have characterized it in so transactional a way. And that's what's fascinating to me about this. And so to get back to your question about the CIA... Actually, this is kind of a vindication for intelligence. The CIA has its own reporting from the Turks and from Saudi. The NSA might have its own reporting from the surveillance and eavesdropping that it does overseas. And they made their case to the president. They presented him with what they knew about the story and the involvement of the leaders involved. And he said, "Okay, here you go. But I've decided to make my own decision. And so viewed from that perspective, it wasn't a breakdown. The system worked. Uh, it just isn't the job of the intelligence community to advocate for one outcome of the other to the president. And um, I would be very interested to hear when people from this era write their, write their memoirs, how people inside the family felt about that, except to say that the system worked from their perspective. They got information, they brought things in from these foreign partners, and they made their case, and the president made his decision. Moving on to, uh, again, a a current situation, and that's Russia with Ukraine. Uh, President's expected to meet with Putin, and uh, at least as of Tuesday morning, uh, that meeting is still on. 
the president has been silent about the uh, uh, incursion with Russia and the the Ukraine. Talk about that situation and how it builds up to a meeting with Putin. Uh, many people are asking that that meeting be canceled. We, we if past is is prologue, it won't be. Talk no, about I that. Think, yeah, I, I think you're right. I think the president will probably go ahead with his meeting with the Russian leader. And I am fascinated by this story because it's not clear to me, and maybe this is known or knowable, but how far up the chain of command this situation goes. We were talking earlier about who might have been the decision maker with Customs and Border Protection about using tear gas um, in Tijuana. I'm very interested to, to learn, if that's ever knowable, what Russian leader made this decision to take this Ukraine conflict in the East out of the kind of quasi-stasis in which it has stood since 2014, since the Russian incursion there, and heat it up again with this very kinetic confrontation of these uh, vessels uh, that you've seen on TV, the Russian ships um, ramming the uh, Ukrainian vessels and the bullet holes in their hulls and so forth, because it has put the president in a really uncomfortable position. He, in terms of his policy, has been a very aggressive supporter of Ukraine um, in the same way that there are a lot of situations with the United States today where there are two policies. There's what the president articulates publicly and there's what his administration actually does. What the administration has actually done is something that its predecessor never would do, which is to provide weapons, actual kinetic weapons for Ukrainian forces to use in the east against areas that have been taken by Russian sympathetic forces and also some actual active Russian forces. And uh, the United States has continued to isolate Russia. It's continued to impose impose, um, punitive diplomatic measures against it and so forth. But the president himself wants to have a great deal more warmth in his relationship with the Russians generally and with the Russian leader personally. And when he talks about this, he talks about how it's basically the Ukrainians' fault or it's President Obama's fault for letting this situation take place in the first place. And it's it's tough to figure out how you get there because of the agency that the Russians have and because of their uh, huge Delta in the power dynamic between Russia and Ukraine and Crimea and the east of Ukraine in 2014. But that's what he says. And so this Russian incursion, this Russian um, quasi-crisis with the Ukrainians over these naval vessels has deliberately or not preempted a test or prompted a test for the president and the way he responds. So far, the president has declined to criticize the Russians or the Russian president Putin after this incident with the Ukrainian vessels. And as you said, he appears to be on track to continue to have this meeting with Putin on the sidelines of this big international conference. And so if that continues, that'll just be more evidence for the many observers and commentators across the West, not just in the United States, who've identified this incredible desire at times by the president to be uh, sympathetic to Putin and to to placate him and please him and be simpatico. The most famous example of which was their summit in Helsinki in Finland, when the president and President Putin were asked directly about the Russian attack on the 2016 election, which, as you and I have discussed before, Tom, is not a disputed story no. in Washington at this point. It's, it's something that's been established factually. There are people who are in jail or who are going to be in jail for their association with that story. But the president said in that meeting, I don't see why it would have been the Russians. You know, he took he took Putin's denials at face value and he might have had 
political calculations for doing that at one time because it took his 2016 victory into question and gave him an asterisk in terms of his legitimacy as president. But to do so on the podium with the Russian leader in a foreign capital uh, in the eyes of the world was a historic step for a lot of people. And this Ukraine crisis or quasi-crisis or slow crisis puts him in a similar situation where the policy of the United States for from everyone below him in the government and for his predecessor was to support the Ukrainians against the Russians within reason because the European powers don't want to have World War III over Ukraine. They just don't. But at the same time, they need to show strength. They want to show support, and they have in the past. And now here's another opportunity where the president could do that. So far, he just hasn't chosen to do that. Last issue for you, Phil, and that that is uh, we're coming up with, as we said in January, a, a Democratic House, uh, Mueller's report, uh, future in indictments most likely. Uh, this is going to be a busy holiday season. Uh, once January comes, we, we know the Democrats have said they're going to launch numerous in investigations. Clear the haze for us a little bit. Uh, out here in the heartland, what would be the one or two issues we should be looking at between now and, say, the end of January? Well, you're right. Um, there are three important new incoming chairmen in the House. Adam Schiff is a Democrat from California who's going to be the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee. Elijah Cummings is a Democrat from Maryland who's going to be the chairman of the House Oversight and Government Reform Committee. And Jerry Nadler is a Democrat from New York who's going to be the chairman of the uh, House Judiciary Committee. And they're going to do very important things, but they're also going to stop doing very important things. Um, and that's where I'll start. The past two years or the past year and a half have been a huge campaign of scourging and sandblasting by the president's supporters in the House, uh, Bob Goodlatte of Virginia, Trey Gowdy of South Carolina, um, uh, Jim Jordan, who's from in Ohio, Ohio, actually. Yeah. Um, they have really gone on offense against the special counsel's office and the Justice Department, and specifically against Mueller and the Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein, investigating them criticizing them, uh, putting political pressure on them because of the Russia investigation, which they call a witch hunt, which they say is unfounded, and which they say actually obfuscates other transgressions by Democrats. When uh, Jerry Nadler is chairman, that will stop. And so the volume will turn down on Rosenstein and the Justice Department in ways uh, that it has been turned way up for the past six or eight or ten months. So you'll hear less about that, most likely. And then in the case of oversight and intelligence, uh, those committees want to do a lot more work about the president's personal finances, whether he might have laundered money for um, underworld figures out of Russia and into the United States. There's been a lot of criticism about that by Democrats how much his business may be benefiting today from uh, foreign powers, from uh, foreign officials staying in his hotels, from people convening meetings at his golf courses, etc. Democrats really want to talk about that. And Democrats also, and this gets outside of my uh, little parish, want to obtain and release the president's tax returns, which could be a key to those first and second other things, because they would provide 
a record of his finances, which so far has not been public and independent outside of some heroic investigative reporting by the New York Times. Um, That, however, may not pay off for the first six months of the new year. And so if you're looking for things... The biggest change may be that the drumbeat of criticism and sandblasting about the special counsel in the Justice Department gets turned way down or it stops altogether. Republicans will still do it, but they won't be able to convene hearings in the way that they can now in the majority because Democrats will be taking over. And then there'll be a huge work uh, effort that gets started by Democrats that could start to pay off weeks and months from now. One other technical thing specifically on the Intelligence Committee is that the House Intelligence Committee today has concluded its Russia investigation. And because Republicans hold the gavel, it concluded, I think back in March, that there was no wrongdoing by the president or his associates in 2016, that there were these contacts, these pilot wells that the Russians were trying to drill. But the worst that could be said in their view was that there had been some poor decision making, but no criminal activity and certainly no Uh, quote-unquote collusion between any Americans and these active measures by the Russians. Schiff has the ability to start that investigation back up again, to pull that conclusion back and say, we're going to have new hearings, we're going to interview more witnesses, and we're going to issue subpoenas to compel people to give evidence in a way that Republicans were not willing to do. That brings me to the second big major storyline that I think could be coming in 2019, which is a lot has been made, including mea culpa by my colleagues and myself, Um, in the press about the power of subpoenas when Democrats control uh, the majority in these committees. One thing that I think 2019 is going to test is the true power of those subpoenas, because in the judicial context, as you know better than anyone, Tom, if a a jury issues a subpoena, a grand jury issues a subpoena, um, there is no refuge that is safe within the territory of the United States or the world from that subpoena. And Correct. if you don't give evidence, if you don't give testimony, et cetera, the, the authorities will lock you up and put you in jail for not doing that because you'll be in contempt of court and a judge has that power. But Congress, when it needs to force the issue, has many fewer recourses as compared with a criminal proceeding at the state level or the federal level. And so a Congress can find someone in contempt of Congress in the way that Republicans did in the Obama administration over the former Attorney General Eric Holder when he wouldn't comply with what they wanted on the Fast and Furious scandal. And that may be a test that gets run again and again because members of Congress are going to be so you know, eager to use these subpoenas to try to force people to come in. There will be a lot more opportunities for administration witnesses, White House witnesses to say no. And then what's Congress going to do? What what can it practically do? Nothing. It can find people in contempt of Congress, and it can refer those matters to the Justice Department. But I don't know if anyone who's ever actually had to face any practical recourse in the same way that someone might in a criminal proceeding for not complying with a congressional subpoena. Now, there's a lot of lawyers in Washington who want to preserve the practice and precedent of oversight and subpoena and gathering evidence. So there may not be many of these crises in the coming year, but I wouldn't be surprised if there are some of these crises and also crises over executive privilege where the president can say to members of Congress, you may not have the documents you've requested or you may not hear from the witness that you wish to testify because I have the privilege of conducting business internally and doing communications within the administration that I do not wish to become public because it would affect our decision making. And when executive privilege cases come before Congress, they usually turn into years long court battles. And we could see a few of those too. Stepping back just a little bit, I see this, and and correct me if I'm mistaken, as really 
a time where we're going to be defining the powers of the branches of government and seeing whether uh, seeing one what those powers truly are but seeing what happens if an executive bucks those powers uh, we've never had a president not follow a ruling of the Supreme Court, for example. Uh, but I see that as a potential issue as we come forward. I think that's right. The president and his administration have articulated some of the broadest and most sweeping views of presidential power ever in history. The president has argued effectively that he cannot commit a crime um, because he can't be indicted by the Justice Department. And even if he did commit that theoretical crime, he has the power to pardon himself. And so he can obviate any outcome. And that's not a consensus view in Washington. There are, I, I don't think there are a lot of people who necessarily agree with that interpretation, but that is the position that they have staked out. And the Congress itself over the past period in our political history has become more supine for a lot of historic reasons, a lot of political exigencies. And so every time an opposition power uh, party comes in to control one or both of the chambers, it likes to reassert that power in ways that it can because the Congress wants to stand first among equals as the Article One branch, but it also uh, can make good political hay out of holding the opposite party president to account. And with this president and with the views and positions that his administrations have taken, that could be the most aggressive and kind of bare knuckle fight that we've ever had about those powers, even following the Obama administration, which claimed big executive powers which argued that it could do, the President Obama came out and said, I don't have Congress anymore, but I have a pen and a phone. I'm going to use executive action in the bully pulpit to get what I want. President Trump has already done that. He's already uh, changed the practices of the government in a lot of ways. Um, in the view of critics, he's really curtailed the independence of the Justice Department, for example, which his critics and opponents find uh, deeply problematic and which could pay off in potentially very troubling ways, according to what... Um, critics and doomsayers say about the acting attorney general. So 2019 with Democrats in the majority in the House will bring the most aggressive um, pageant we may have seen in very many years, as you say, in testing what those limits are and which branch has which power and who can check what aspect of the way government works in Washington. Phil, as always, thank you for your insights. We deeply, deeply appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. Today, we've been talking with Phil Ewing, National Security Editor for National Public Radio, about what's going on in Washington as we near the year's end. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or at NPR One. Spectrum also is available at the NPR Podcast Directory. We always welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it through one of your podcast outlets. <laughs>